0: SECTION 19 OF THE BOOK OF THE BUSH This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale SECTION 19 THE TWO SHEPHERDS, PART 4. Having been satiated with the pleasures of fishing and pig hunting, Philip was next invited to try the pursuit of the kangaroo. The first meet of men and hounds took place at Gleason's farm. McCarthy brought his dogs, and Philip brought Sam, his revolver and a club. Barton was too proud to join in the sport. He despised inferior game. It might amuse new chums, But it was below the notice of the old trooper, whose business had been for many years to hunt and shoot bushrangers and blackfellows, not to mention his regular duty as flagellator. Gleeson that morning was cutting up his pumpkin plants with an axe. "'Good morning, Mr. Gleeson,' said Philip. "'Is anything the matter? Is it a snake you are killing?' Gleeson began to laugh, a little ashamed of himself, and said, Look at these cursed pumpkins. I think they are bewitched. Every morning I come to see if the fruit is growing. But this is what they do. As soon as they get as big as a small potato, they begin to wither and turn yellow, and not a bit more will they grow. So I'm cutting the blessed things to pieces. Philip saw that about half the runners had already been destroyed. He said, "'Don't chop any more, Gleason." and I'll show you how to make pumpkins grow. He picked up a feather in the fowl yard and went inside the garden. Now look at these flowers closely. They are not all alike. This flower will never turn into a pumpkin, but this one will if it gets a little of the dust from the first flower. The bees or other insects usually take dust from one flower to the other, but I suppose there are no bees about here just now. Philip then dusted every flower that was open, and said, Now, my friend, put away the axe, and you will have fruit here yet. And the pumpkins grew and ripened. The two men then went towards the house, and Philip observed the fragments of a clock scattered about the ground in front of the veranda. What happened to the clock? said Philip. Why, replied Gleeson, the thing wasn't going right at all. So I took it to pieces just to examine it, and to oil the wheels, and when I tried to put it together again, the fingers were all awry, and the pins wouldn't fit in their places, and the pendulum swung crooked, and the whole thing bothered me, so I just laid it out on the floor of the veranda, and gave it one big kick that sent it to smithereens. But don't mind me or the clock at all, Master. Just come inside, and we'll have a bit of dinner before we start." Gleason was the kindest man in the world. All he wanted was a little patience. The kangaroo gave better sport than either the fish or the pig, and Philip enjoyed it. His mare proved swift, but sometimes shied at the start when the kangaroos were in full view. She seemed to think that there was a kangaroo behind every tree, so she jumped aside from the trunks. That was to kill Philip at last, but he had not the least idea what was to happen, and was as happy as hermits usually are. And they have their troubles and accidents, just like other people. The kangaroos, when disturbed, made for the thick timber, and the half-grown ones, called flying joeys, always escaped, they were so swift, and they could jump to such a distance that I won't mention it, as some ignorant people might call me a liar. Those killed were mostly does with young, or old men. Any horse of good speed could round up a heavy old man. And then he made for the nearest gum-tree, and stood at bay with his back to it. It was dangerous for a man or dog to attack him in front, for, with his long hind claws, he could cut like a knife. Philip's family began to desert him. Bruin, as already stated, Sneaked away and was killed by Hugh Boyle. Joey opened his cage door and flew up a gum tree. When Philip came home from the school and saw the empty cage, he called aloud, Joey, Joey, sweet, pretty Joey, and whistled. The bird descended as far as the lightwood, but would not be coaxed to come any nearer. He actually mocked his master and said, Ha, 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 who are you, who are you? "'There is na luck about the hoose,' "'which soon proved true. "'For the next bird Pussy brought into the house "'was Joey himself.'" Pup led a miserable life and died early. The coroner suspected that he had been murdered by Maggie, but there was no absolute proof. Maggie had really no conscience. She began to gad about the bush. In her girlish days, she wore short frocks, as it were, having had her wings clipped. But the next spring she went into society, was a debutante, wore a dress of black and white satin, which shone in the sun. And she grew so vain and flighty, and strutted about so, that it was really ridiculous to watch her. She began also to stay out late in the evening, which was very improper. And before going to bed, Philip would go under the lightwood, with a lighted candle, and look for her amongst the leaves, saying, "'Maggie, are you there?' She was generally fast asleep, and all she could do was blink her eyes and say, "Pete, Pete," and fall asleep again. But one night she never answered at all. She was absent all the next day, and many days after that. October came, when all the scrub, the lightwood, and wattle were in full bloom, and the air everywhere was full of sweetness. Philip was digging his first boiling of new potatoes when all at once Maggie swooped down into the garden and began strutting about, picking up the worms and grubs from the soil newly turned up. "'Oh, you impudent hussy,' he said, "'where have you been all this time?' He stooped and tried to stroke her head as usual with his forefinger. But Maggie struck her bill in the ground, turned a complete somersault, and caught the finger with both claws, which were very sharp." She held on for a short time, then dropped nimbly to her feet, and said, "'There, now. That will teach you to behave yourself.' "'Why, Maggie,' said Philip, "'what on earth is the matter with you?' "'Oh, there's nothing the matter with me, I assure you. I suppose you didn't hear the news. You are such an old stick in the mud. It was in the papers, though. No cards, And all the best society ladies knew it, of course.' "'Why, Maggie, you don't mean to say you've got a mate?' "'Of course I have, you horrid man. You are so vulgar. We were married ages ago. I didn't invite you, of course, because I knew you would make yourself disagreeable, forbid the bands or something, and scare away all the ladies and gentlemen. For you are a most awful fright, with your red hair and freckles. So I thought it best to say nothing about the engagement until the ceremony was over. It was performed by the Reverend Sinister Cornix. And... "'It was a very select affair, I assure you. "'And the dresses were so lovely. "'There were six bridesmaids, the Misses Mudlark. "'The Mudlarks, you know, have a good pedigree. "'They are come from the younger branch of our family. "'We were united in the bonds under a cherry tree. "'Oh, it was a lovely time. "'It was, indeed, I assure you. "'And where are you living now, Maggie?' "'Oh, I'm not going to tell you. "'You are too inquisitive.' but our mansion is on the top of a gum tree it is among the leaves at the end of a slender branch if hugh boyle tries to kidnap my babies the branch will snap and he will fall and break his neck the wretch oh i assure you we've thought of everything beforehand for i know you keep a lot of boys bad enough to steal anything and what sort of mate husband i mean have you got oh he is a perfect gentleman and so attentive to me Latterly, he has been a little crusty, I must admit, but you must not say a word against him. If you do, I'll peck your eyes out. A family, you know, is so troublesome, and it takes all your time to feed them. There are two of them, the duckiest little fluffy darlings you ever saw. They were very hungry this morning, so when I saw you diggin', I knew you wouldn't begrudge them a breakfast, and I just flew down here for it. But, bless my soul, the little darlings will be screaming their hearts out with hunger while I am talking to you, and himself will be swearing like a Derviner. So, bye-bye. Philip found Maggie's mansion easily enough, for in spite of all her chatter, she had no depth of mind. The tallest gum tree was on Barlow's farm, which adjoined the forty acres on the east. Barlow had been a stockman for several years on Calvert's run, and had saved money. He invested his money in the bank of love, and the bank broke. It happened in this way. A new shepherd, from the other side, was living with his wife and daughter near the Rises, and one day, when Barlow was riding over the run, he heard some strange sounds and stopped his horse to listen. There was nobody in sight in any direction, and Barlow said, there's something the matter at the new shepherd's hut, and he rode swiftly towards it. As he approached the hut, he heard the screams of women and the voice of a black fellow who was hammering on the door with his waddy. He was a tame black fellow who had been educated at the missionary station. He could write English, say prayers, sing hymns, read the Bible, and was therefore named Parson Bedford by the Derviners, after the Tasmanian missionary. He could box and wrestle so well that few white men could throw him. He could also drink rum, so whenever he got any white money, he knew how to spend it. He was the best thief and worst bully of all the blacks about Nyalong, because he had been so well educated. I knew him well and attended his funeral, walking in the procession with the doctor and twenty black fellows. He had a white man's funeral, but there was no live parson present, so King Coco Quine made an oration waving his hand over the coffin. All same as white fellow Parson. Then we all threw clods on the lid. So much noise was made by the women screaming and the Parson hammering that the stockman was able to launch one crack of his stock whip on the Parson's back before his arrival was observed. The Parson sprang up into the air like a shot deer and then took to his heels. He did not run towards the open plains but made a straight line for the nearest part of the rises. As he ran, Frank followed at an easy canter, and over and over again he landed his lash with a crack like a pistol on the behind of the black, who sprang among the rough rocks, which the horse could not cross, and where the lash could not reach him. Then there was a parley. The parson was smarting and furious. He had learned the colonial art of blowing along with the language. He threw down his waddy and said, "'You stockman, Frank, come off that horse, drop your whip, and I'll fight you fair, same as white fellow. I am as good a man as you any day.' "'Do you take me for a blooming fool, Parson? No fear. If I ever see you at that hut again, or anywhere on the run, I'll cut the shirt off your back. I shall tell Mr. Calvert what you have been after, and you'll soon find yourself in Chokey with a rope, round your neck." The parson left Nyalong, and, when he returned, he was dying of rum and rheumatism. Frank rode back to the hut. The mother and daughter had stood at the door watching him flog the parson. He was, in their eyes, a hero. He had scourged their savage enemy, and had driven him to the rocks. They were weeping beauties. At least the daughter was a beauty in Frank's eyes. But now they wiped away their tears, smoothed their hair, and thanked their gallant knight over and over again. Two at a time, they repeated their story, how they saw the black fellow coming, how they bolted the door, and how he battered it with his club, threatening to kill them if they did not open it. Frank had never before been so much praised and flattered, at least not since his mother weaned him. But he pretended not to care. He said, Tut-tut, "'It's not worth mentioning. "'Say no more about it. "'I would, of course, have done as much for anybody.' "'Of course he could not leave the ladies again "'to the mercy of the parson, "'so he waited until the shepherd returned with his flock. "'Then Frank rode away with a new sensation, "'a something as near akin to love "'as a rough stockman could be expected to feel. "'Nettie the shepherd asked Mr. Calvert "'for the loan of arms.' and he taught his wife and daughter to use the old tower muskets. He said, If ever that parson comes to the hut again, put a couple of bullets through him. After that, Frank called at the hut nearly every day, inquiring if the parson had been seen anywhere abroad. No, said Cicely. We haven't seen him anymore. And she smiled so sweetly, and lowered her eyes, and spoke low, with a bewitching Tasmanian accent. Frank was in the mud, and sinking daily deeper and deeper. At last, he resolved to turn farmer and leave the run. So he rented the land adjoining Philip's garden and the forty-acre. There was on it a four-roomed weather-board house and outbuildings, quite a bush place. Farming was then profitable. Frank plowed a large paddock and sowed it with wheat and oats. Then, while the grain was ripening, He resolved to ask Cicely a very important question. On Sunday he rode to the hut with a spare horse and side-saddle. Both horses were well-groomed. The side-saddle was new. The bits, buckles, and stirrup-irons were like burnished silver. Cicely could ride well, even without a saddle, but had never owned one. She yielded to temptation, but with becoming coyness and modesty. Frank put one hand on his knee holding the bridle with the other. Then Cicely raised one of her little feet and was lifted lightly onto the saddle, and the happy pair cantered gaily over the plain to their future home. Frank showed his bride-elect the land and the crops, the cows and the horses, the garden and the house. Cicely looked at everything, but said next to nothing. She is shy, Frank thought, and I must treat her gently. But the opportunity... "'must not be thrown away, "'and on their way over the plains "'Frank told his tale of love. "'I don't know precisely what he said, "'or how he said it, not having been present, "'but he did not hook his fish that day, "'and he took home with him the bait, "'the horse and the empty side-saddle. "'But he persevered with his suit, "'and before the wheat was ripe, "'Cicely consented to be his bride.' He was so overjoyed with his success, that instead of waiting for the happy day when he had to say, with this ring I thee wed, with all my worldly goods I thee endow, he gave Cicely the worldly goods beforehand, the horse with the beautiful new side-saddle and bridle, and nearly all his cash, reserving only sufficient to purchase the magic ring and a few other necessaries. The evening before the happy day, the pair were seen walking together before sundown on a vacant lot in the township, discussing, it was supposed, the arrangements for the morrow. It was the time of the harvest, and Philip had been engaged to measure the work of reapers on a number of farms. I am aware that he asked and received one pound for each paddock, irrespective of area. On the bridal morn, he walked over Frank's farm with his chain, and began the measurement. The reapers, most of them broken-down diggers, following him and watching him. Old Jimmy Gillen took one end of the chain. He said he had been a chainman when the railway mania first broke out in Scotland, so he knew all about land surveying. Frank was absent, but he returned while Philip was calculating the wages payable to each reaper. And he said, ''Here's the money, master pay the men what's coming to them, and send them away. Frank looked very sulky, and Philip was puzzled. He knew the blissful ceremony was to take place that day, but there was no sign of it, nor of any bliss whatever. No wedding garments, no parson, no bride. The bare matter of fact was the bride had eloped during the night. For young Lochinvar had come out of the West, an underbred, Fine spoken fellow was he? He was a bullock driver of superior manners and attractive personality, and was the only man in Australia who waxed and curled his mustaches. Cicely had for some time been listening to Lochinvar, who was known to have been endeavoring to cut out Frank. She was staying in the township with her mother, preparing for matrimony, and her horse was in the stable at Howell's hotel. When Frank rode away to his farm on that fateful evening, Lochinvar was watching him. He saw Cicely going home to her mother for the last night, and while he was looking after her wistfully and the pangs of despairing love were in his heart, Bill the Butcher came up and said, Well, Locke, what are you going to do? Why, what can I do? She is going to marry Frank in the morning. I don't believe it. Not if you are half the man you ought to be. But how can I help it? Help it. Just go and take her. Saddle your horse and her own. Take him up to the cottage and ask her just to come outside for a minute. And if you don't persuade her in five minutes to ride away with you to Ballarat, I'll eat my head off. I know she don't want to marry Frank. All she wants is an excuse not to. And it will be excuse enough when she has married you. These two worthy men went to the hotel and talked the matter over with Howell. The jolly landlord slapped his knee and laughed. He said, You are right, Bill. She'll go. I'll bet a fiver. And here it is, Locke. You take it to help you along. This base conspiracy was successful. And that was the reason Frank was so sulky on the harvest morning. He was meditating vengeance. Love and hate, matrimony and murder, are sometimes not far asunder. But Frank was not by nature vengeful. He had that foolish hanging of the nether lip, which shows a lack of decision. I would not advise any man to seek in law court a sovereign remedy for the wounds inflicted by the shafts of Cupid. But Frank tried it. During his examination in chief, his mane was gloomy and his answers brief. Then Mr. Aspinall rose and said, I appear for the defendant, Your Honor, but from press of other engagements I have been unable to give that attention to the legal aspects of this case which its importance demands, and I have to request that your honor will be good enough to adjourn the court for a quarter of an hour. The court was adjourned for half an hour, and Mr. Aspinall and his solicitor retired to a room for legal consultation. It began thus. I say, Lane, fetch me a knobber of brandy, a sniffer, mind. Lane fetched the sniffer in a soda-water bottle, and it cleared the legal atmosphere. When the court resumed business, Frank took his stand in the witness box, and a voice said, "'Now, Mr. Barlow, look at me.' Frank had been called many names in his time, but never Mr. Barlow before now. He looked and saw the figure of a little man with a large head, whose voice came through a full-grown nose, like the blast of a trumpet. "'You say you gave Sicily some money,' a horse, saddle and bridle. I did. And you bought a wedding ring. I got it in my pocket. I see. Your Honor will be glad to hear that the ring, at any rate, is not lost. It will be ready for another Sicily, won't it, Mr. Barlow? Barlow, looking down on the floor of the court and shaking his head slowly from side to side, said, No, it won't. No fear. There'll be a No more Sicilies for me. There was laughter in the court, and when Frank raised his eyes and saw a broad grin on every face, he, too, burst into a fit of laughter. End of Section 19 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas